Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. difficult to apply this method in the South when it's declared that as of a certain date the Negro's children will be free, the principle and idea of liberty are introduced into the very heart of servitude. Blacks who are kept in slavery by lawmakers and who see their children free are stunned by such unequal treatment at the hands of fate. This troubles and irritates them. From that moment on, slavery loses whatever moral power time and custom have given it in their eyes. It is reduced to nothing but a flagrant abuse of force. The North had nothing to fear from this contrast, because in the North, blacks were few in number and whites quite numerous. But if the first glimmers of freedom were to shine upon two million men at once, their oppressors would be obliged to tremble. Well, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And as you probably know, we're continuing our look at Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. And we're going to be finishing up Volume 1 of Democracy in America today. Uh, this section is fairly long. It, it covers about 160 pages, and it deals with several interrelated issues that kind of spring from where we left off in the last episode. The last episode looked at um, basically democracy and political culture and how that manifests in American institutions such as newspapers, uh, such as local governance, and things like that. And, and he ends, though, with the great fear that is in his mind about the long-standing endurance of democracy, and that is the tyranny of the majority. There, that there's very little in the American system that prevents, that stops um, the full power of the tyranny of the majority. Um, the rest of volume one then is, is kind of a development of this problem. Um, now, he's not fully pessimistic here. He does think there are forces that temper this and will, will help maintain it, but there are also forces that are going to break, that, that potentially can break up the union. Uh, not necessarily threaten democracy, though. He, he sees that as a separate question, um, that, yeah, the union might not survive because of various reasons having to do fundamentally with, with race. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean democracy, uh, the way he defines it anyways, ex here it's exclusively to, to white men. Um, will will survive but he sees something else when he starts to introduce the question of race he talks about the indians and the indians are are a special case but really at the heart of the problem is slavery and it's to a degree uh slavery introduces the great promise of democracy because once slavery ends he thinks democracy will will be will be taken up by former slaves. Right? The fact that they might already have those ideas is something he doesn't really consider. And historians since Tocqueville have you know, told the story of how enslaved men and women actually were receivers of, of concepts of American democracy. But um, for they're kind of politically inert in Tocqueville's rendering of them. But as soon as they'd be freed, then democracy would be, they'd be included in it or expect to be included in it. And that's the great promise here, and I think that's that's the radicalism of of the American Revolution and American democracy is its open endedness, right? And the fact that you know you might start with just property white men, but.
but then other groups are going to seize their role in American democracy. And of course, that's much of the story of American history is that that, that expansion of, 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 of democracy to these other groups. So anyways, we're going to go through this, this finish up volume, volume one. Um, so um, we start with chapter eight. Um, let's start with chapter, we're still going to have chapters eight, nine, and ten of volume one, which takes us to the end of volume one. Chapter eight is called On That Which Tempers the Tyranny of the Majority of the United States. So this just builds off of chapter seven, which introduces the tyranny of the majority, or what he called the omnipotence, what Tocqueville called the omnipotence of the majority. Here he, he says, well, it's not as bad as you might think. That certainly, potentially, the tyranny of the majority is there. And there doesn't seem to be too many institutions that can prevent it from really get, sinking its teeth into the American system. But he also thinks that there are forces that, that, that as he calls, tempers it, or, you know, tones it down, modifies it, streamlines it, and, and makes it less damaging. And he really points to three things that do this. Uh, first is uh, law. Second is the lack of administrative centralization. And the third is, is the jury system. And that's kind of tied to law. Now, as for law, he means here law in like the American system. So he thinks like the federal system itself tempers the tyranny of the majority in ways that anyone who took a civics class in, in, you know, in school knows or any American who took a civics class, is that you have divided power, you have checks and balances, and all that stuff, you know, makes the threat of the tyranny of the majority a little bit um, less powerful, so it tempers it. It doesn't completely get rid of it, of course, and he does think at the local level this majority is, is certainly more powerful. And he finds a really interesting class of people in this section um, where that seems not to be very the most democratic thing, but somehow it's really worked its way in to American democracy as kind of a special privilege, as a special privileged position, right? Not the entrepreneur. Someone writing now may think it's the entrepreneur, but it's the lawyer. He really s says that it's the lawyer, the position of the lawyer, the master of law, the, the, the lawmaker as a lawyer, right? The fact that so many politicians come out of this legal uh, tradition that this has a, a function of tempering the will of the majority because of a tendency to to accept the knowledge and the, the wisdom of, of the lawyer. He says, for instance, lawyers who constitute the only enlightened class not distrusted by the people are naturally called upon to film the most public offices. The legislatures are full of them and that head many administrative departments. They therefore exercise considerable influence on both the making and execution of the law. Yet they are obliged to yield to the current of public opinion that sweeps them along. Nevertheless, it's easy to find indications of what they would do if they were free. For all the innovations that Americans have brought to the political laws, they have made only minor changes to the civil laws. And even then, only with great difficulty. Though any number of those laws are strongly out of keeping with their social state. The reason for this is that when it comes to civil law, the majority has no choice but to rely on lawyers. And American lawyers, when free to choose, will not innovate. So this, what he's saying here is lawyers are a little bit conservative. They they're tend to kind of work within the legal structures they have. And that despite the will of the majority pushing something, you're going to have like this, I don't know if you want to think of it a little more like a bureaucratic backstrop, but it's not bureaucratic. It's, it's kind of the, just the, the, the structure of law and lawmaking itself gets in the way of that. Um, so that's one thing that's going to temper the will of the majority. 
Uh, a second is just generally the lack of administrative centralization. Um, and this is essentially the inability of the majority to control all in any one place, right? So uh, this kind of gets to the federal system a little bit as well, in that you have these kind of divided powers. And the sense uh, you have the federal system itself, it means that, yeah, you may have tyranny of the majority in one state, in Illinois, but maybe nearby in Wisconsin, you have an indifferent tyranny of the majority, and they, they kind of balance out. Or, um, you know, in one case, for whatever local conditions are, they, they kind of don't pursue that. Or, you know, you might have uh, more of a majoritarian rule at the local and state level, but at the federal level, you don't have that. So the lack of a central state, a unitary state, Basically, it's just a fancy way of saying, because America is a federal uh, state, you're not going to have the ability for the majority just to sweep into office in one position and then impose radical change on, on the system. The third is the most interesting, though, and this is the jury. Um, and first, at first glance, the jury is, is actually more democracy, right? That the law itself is ultimately in interpreted not by a lawyer, but by the jury, and the jury can decide, well, we're not gonna follow this law, right? That seems to be more democratic, right? Jury nullification, I don't think he uses the term jury nullification here, but it's at least implied to be an extension of democracy. But the heart of it is the autonomy of judges and juries together. Judges, he actually says, are more powerful in America, and I think he alluded to this earlier in the book as well, um, because judges aren't bound by the law. They, their job isn't just to apply and interpret the laws maybe in France or in China, or Japan or some of these cultures where really the function of the judge merely is to follow the will of the law. The judges in democracies, or at least in the United States, have that kind of flexibility to, to interpret it, and juries have this right to disregard the law altogether if they want. And so that makes this, the legal power of the majority, um, as he calls it, tempered. It's the autonomy of the judges and juries that's key here. So this is chapter eight. It's a very interesting chapter that I think uh, shows that despite having the risk of tyranny of the majority, in practice, there, there's, there's limits to it. And some of those limits are because there's this kind of divided nature of democracy. That you have, you're, it's democratic in the sense that you vote, but also it's democratic in the interpretation of law. And, and you know, that's going to kind of create some negotiation within democracy itself. Um, now, chapter nine kind of builds off of this and says, well, what are what does he call it? It's uh, the clauses that maintain the republic is the name of chapter nine. And it kind of builds off this. Uh, well, the full title of chapter nine is on the principal causes that tend to maintain in democratic republic, maintain the democratic republic in the United States. So, um, you know, he's already kind of talked about some of these things, but he's going a little bit farther than just, uh, not just tempering the majority, but keeping the republic intact. And he sees three here. Um, in particular, the first is accidental situation. The second is laws. And the third is habits. Now, why is this important? Well, this is important for Tocqueville because once you can identify why a republic can endure in America, you can apply that principle, a democratic republic in particular, you can apply that to the other societies. And say, which is most important? Is it the accident of American system? Is it simply the legal structure, the federal structure that does it? And if that's the case, that can be replicated elsewhere. If it's mores, those are things that can be learned. If it's simply all accidental 
luck, like the frontier or a settler society or something like that, then you might find it harder to spread to other places, right? So this is actually a key chapter in his interpretation of the overall global trend towards democracy, right? Because, of course, the criticism of that is say, well, it might work there, but it doesn't work elsewhere, right? I hear that all the time in China when I, whenever I talk to people informally about democracy. It's always, well, you know, democracy is fine in America, but it's not really suited to the Chinese circumstance, right? They always forget Taiwan when they, they talk about that. On the one hand, they, they say, oh, the Taiwanese are just Chinese, therefore they should be a province of China. On the other hand, the fact that they have democracy isn't proof that, that the Chinese societies can, can have democracy. So they're kind of having their cake and eating it too with that. But you know, if you do believe, like Tocqueville does, of the trend towards democracy, you have to somehow detach the reason it endures from its specific historical, geographical, um, conditions. But he does start there. He does start with uh, the accidental forces. And what do you have here? Well, um, basically two main things are hinted at. One is the general equality of conditions, which is already talked about, but that's got to be combined with material prosperity or general prosperity. Uh, you're going to have equality of conditions and poverty, and that's not going to be a suitable place for a republic in his view. It's the combination of equality of conditions and overall prosperity. And it's almost like a post-scarcity argument in a way that when, he doesn't quite go that far obviously, but America being closer to a post-scarcity situation where there's a general enjoyment of wealth across the society, then you, you don't need those social distinctions anymore. You don't need the, like the, arist the aristocracy deciding where the wealth goes. He wrote, America today offers man resources so vast that industry cannot exploit them fast enough. Hence, in America, no amount of enlightenment can ever be sufficient, for enlightenment is not only useful to those who have it, but also profitable to those who do not. There is no reason to fear new needs, because all needs are usually satisfied. There is no reason to dread unleashing a surfeit of passions, because all passions find easy and salutary nourishment. Americans cannot have too much freedom, because they are almost never tempted to use their freedom improperly. The American Republic today are like trading companies organized to exploit the unclaimed territories of the new world, and business is booming. Unquote. It's a very modern prose there. It might be come from the translation, but I rather like it. Uh, so yeah, general prosperity. But this is not what's replicable. It, you know, France doesn't have this. Russia doesn't have this. China didn't have this. So um, if this is what it all takes, if this is what it requires, if this is the precondition of democracy, then the idea of it spreading beyond America is um, we have good reason to doubt. But he says this is not even the most important one. And he mentions law next. Now here, you know, it's kind of like what he was talking about in, in chapter 8, that the fact that you have local institutions, you have a constitution, the federal system in general. And he says, I'm not going to repeat all this because I've already talked about this at length, but just the, the system itself, the structure itself is key. And he thinks that's actually more important at the end of the day than, than the general material prosperity. Um, and then he gets to mores. Now mores, this is, this is kind of feeding into the stuff he's going to talk about in book two. But remember when he wrote this initially, he just wrote volume one thinking that was the whole book, right? He later on wrote volume two. So this is a, a capsule form of some of the things he's going to take up in volume two. But he really felt it needed a whole volume. So a few years later, he's going to write the second volume. Um, so here is the closest we get to a real looking at to, to the, the, the mores of, of a democracy. And he looks at different issues here uh, in this section on mores. Um, for instance, religion is very, very interesting. Um, 
Because religion in America is autonomous from the state, it also then becomes uh, more powerful and significant in society, right? I guess the easy way to think about this is, is once uh, religion is detached from the state and detached from state power, it therefore becomes uh, um, a market, right? And therefore, it's going to be more, more, there's going to be more zealotry, there's going to be more action, right? Um, it's, it's going to involve itself in more things because it's not a subset of the state, right? If you have a, a state religion and everyone has to be a member of it, that's just going to do certain tasks, like maybe um, certain aspects of civil law, uh, deal with people's salvations. But in a democracy, religion will be interested in many more things, such as maybe public morality, much more uh, reform, even get involved in politics in ways they wouldn't in a place where, ironically, it's a part of the state, right? Because it'd be controlled and, and, um, and again, kind of harnessed and, and, and serving the state in ways. So this independence gives religion a lot more power. He does think a state religion in a democracy is dangerous, though, and, and something that needs to be uh, fought against if democracy is going to survive. He writes, as a nation, social state becomes increasingly democratic, and as societies lean towards republican forms, it becomes increasingly dangerous for religion to join forces with authority, for power will soon pass from hand to hand. One political theory will replace another, and men, laws, and constitutions themselves will vanish or change from one day to the next. Not just for a while, but constantly. Agitation and instability are inherent to the nature of democratic republics, just as stasis and slumber are the rule in absolute monarchies. Now, where's the danger? The danger is not to democracy so much. The danger is to religion. Because if religion attaches itself to a, what's a very unstable democracy, um, religion, which deals with eternal truths, would constantly be morphed to the political issues of the day, right? So I guess, uh, you know, in the 90s, we, we thought more like America's moving more toward theocracy, right? With like, kind of this new conservative dominance, this religious conservative power. Um, you know, and what was it? George W. Bush banned stem cell research, virology on religious lines, uh, the movement to ban abortion, all these things. Well, you know, that's not the issue of, of today, right? The major political issues are inequality in, in the United States. Now, how does religion, what does religion have to say about that? Well, religion can't speak on certain issues because it basically has to talk about inequality now if it's part of the state. Being independent, they continue to, to stick to whatever issues it wants to stick with. So there's a power in its autonomy, I guess, a power of, of religion. Religion thrives where it's autonomous from the state. So it's, it's all, uh, I'm sure it's going to be talked about more in volume, volume two. I think it is. It's been a while since I looked at that. Um, he talks about practical enlightenment as well here, uh, basically mass education. And we're back to his, his regular argument that what you have in a democracy is everyone being slightly educated, but you don't have the huge extremes in, in education. And there's also kind of a practicality to American-style education and enlightenment. It's like this focus on practical knowledge. He wrote, when the Anglo-Americans first came to the land they descendants now occupy, they were already completely civilized. From then, there was no need to learn. It was enough not to forget. Now, each year, the sons of the same Americans take not only their households, but their acquired knowledge and respect for learning with them into the wilderness. Education has made them aware of the usefulness of enlightenment and placed them in a position to pass it on to their descendants. In the United States, therefore, society has no infancy. It was born into manhood. So that's, a, that's an important aspect to it, too. Like, 
they came or they didn't have to like be educated because they're already educated and the, the value of education was already accepted. So very early on, American colonists established public school systems and, and or, or various forms of education. The Puritans in New England certainly uh, did that. Um, but there's kind of a practicality to the knowledge they, they're attracted to because that's what's most useful kind of in the frontier circumstances. They, they, they shy away from more dubious, uh, speculative, speculative kind of uh, thought. So that's just a little bit he says on mores, but then he, he says, well, let's rank these. Let's, let's see which is most important, mores, law, or conditions. And he says, mores are most important. And mores are something that can be taught. So you need that civilization. You need to have um, some kind of autonomy of religion. Just a couple of uh, examples he gives. But the democratic mores are key. Then laws, then you have to have a system that, that's suitable to protecting republic, a democratic republic. And only then do conditions come in. Conditions are, are third. Now, he might just be uh, pushing the argument because he, he does see the trend as more democracy. And if you do say it's all America's conditions, it's hard to replicate. Um, now, where do the mores come from, though? Where do these mores come from? And he thinks they come from the frontier. And here's where I think there's a little bit of trouble because, um, and where the people who maybe say, democracy really requires certain conditions, it, it's, it's maybe tough to see how other societies that don't have the frontier can get those mores, right? Maybe through education or something. But he does think the frontier in America seems to create these mores. Um, but ultimately he's asked, can this be replicated? Can the mores, can the laws be replicated in other cultures? And he, he, he looks at Europe, he looks at other American states, and he basically says yes. He says, quote, my pur purpose was to show by using America as an example that laws and above all mores could allow a democratic people to remain free. I am, moreover, a very long way from believing that we ought to follow the example set by American democracy or imitate the means that had, it has to achieve its goals. For I'm by no means unaware of their influence exerted by a country's nature and antecedent facts on its political constitution. And I should regard it as a great misfortune for the human race if liberty were obliged to exist identical features wherever it manifests itself. But I do believe that we should not manage gradually to introduce, that if we do not manage to gradually introduce democratic institutions among us and ultimately to establish those institutions on a firm footing, and if we forsake the idea of instilling in all our citizens ideas and feelings, that we will first prepare them for liberty and then enable them to make use of it, then there will be no independence for anyone, not for the bourgeois or the noble or for the poor man or the rich man, but equal tyranny for all." End quote. So a couple of things here. One is it can be replicated. It can't be modeled directly off America, though. There's going to have its own conditions that are going to service it. And it's a necessity to do that. Otherwise, the alternative is tyranny, right? The door's kind of closed on, on aristocracy. This is the thing he's, he talks about quite a lot in this part of the book. Um, you know, especially in America, democracy or what is it? Uh, aristocracy or monarchy aren't even really an option. Okay, so now we get to this behemoth chapter, chapter 10. It's, it's the longest chapter in the entire book, um, including both volumes. It's, it's uh, one that's dealing with a lot of important uh, issues of, of race and about the survival of, of the federal system in America. It's very specific to America, though. So he's moved away from kind of general principles, and he just says, well, let's just look at this American case and what makes it special. And one thing that makes it special are the, the existence of these three races, red, white, and black. Um, now, he doesn't say much about the whites here. He's mostly talking about 
Indians, and particularly about slaves, and as consequence of these institutions and systems on the survival of, of the federal union, really. Um, he has a lot of confidence in the survival of democratic republicanism, but l he's a little more skeptical of the survival of the federal system. Um, so he starts with uh, the con contrast of the Indian and the slave. And, th and these are really, this is just the difference between freedom and servitude. Uh, the Indian is, um, well, how, how did he, I'll just, I'm trying to find a great quote that kind of sums it up. Well, here's one, this is on 396. The Negro would like to blend in with the European and he cannot. The Indian might have some degree succeed in such an enterprise, but he disdains to attempt it. The servility of the Negro dooms him to slavery and the pride of the Indian condemns him to death. Uh, that's the sum up of his overall argument about these two groups. Um, now, what he says here about slavery though is very important. And he kind of accepts the argument that some historians have accepted about the meaning of the Middle Passage for um, black people's culture as they, as they came over. We shouldn't even maybe use the term black people for these Africans' culture. The question is, did Africans bring their culture with them to America? And obviously they did in their heads, but they lacked the ability institutionally um, to sustain that. Often they came from many different parts of Africa, so they didn't even have a common language by which to embrace their culture. And what happened was they became American, right? And some have argued that they became American before people of European descent did because people of European descent had a home culture that they could borrow from a lot easier than, than enslaved men and women could. So they, be, they spoke English or if in, in Saint-Domingue spoke French or whatever. Um, they accepted Christianity, right? Because that was the culture that was available for them to build off of. So they became American, essentially, is the, is the argument. But this is contingent on a, on a kind of a cultural genocide uh, brought about by the Middle Passage. So Tocqueville more or less says this. He says, with a one blow, oppression has deprived the descendants of Africa of nearly all the privileges of humanity. The Negro in the United States has lost even the memory of his homeland. He no longer understands the language spoken by his ancestors. He has forsworn their religion and forgotten their mores. Thus he has ceased to belong to Africa, but he has not therefore acquired any rights to your goods. He is caught between two societies. He remains isolated between two peoples, sold by one, repu repudiated by the other, and in all the world, the only semblance of an ancestral home he has left is in his master's household. Um, in other words, America is, 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 is becomes the homeland. So the overall contrast here, though, between the Indian and the enslaved person is one is, is free to accept European civilization, and more or less doesn't want to, uh, or does so with grumbling and, and hesitation and the enslaved men and women have no choice but to um, accept European culture but are not really welcomed in so they're well or basically it's just in spite of white people's desires they, they, they embrace European culture and that makes them closer to democracy actually is, is his argument which is why once slavery ends in places where it ends black people immediately start to demand full democratic rights and so he's actually quite interested in the north and the impact of the end of slavery in the northern parts and he's interested in the free black communities and their politics and and it's like they you know, like the indians are more aloof from democracy they're less more indifferent to it 
Um, now he talks about the future of the Indians first, and basically he's got three options. One is doom, um, and this is tied to the war path. Basically, resist uh, democracy, resist American, white American culture uh, violently, right? Because that's the only really option, or civilization, right? And and that's the option. You you assimilate or you fight. He's pretty pessimistic about their future, though. He thinks, you know, even if they, like, accept land out west, and he's right in this at the time when Indian removal is taking place and beginning to be debated, you know, they could accept land out in the west, but that's just going to forestall for a couple of decades. And that's, of course, what happened, right, eventually. Uh, the Indians in the west lost their land and were pushed to smaller reservations or increasingly isolated. Or eventually, the Dawes Act says you'll be forced to assimilate into... You know, just become white farmers, essentially, tax-paying farmers. Um, he does, though, talk about the models of, of Indians who embrace um, European civilization, like Cherokee and the Creek, the so-called civilized tribes. And he thinks that's just, uh, they, they kind of embrace this a little bit half-heartedly, is his, is his moral argument about them. Um, but generally, he's pretty pessimistic about their future. Um, like Jefferson, I mean Jefferson, he, he's very close to Jefferson's view, I think, here. Except Jefferson was more optimistic about their assimilation than I think Tocqueville is. Um, now, slavery, this is really the heart of the chapter. And here the choice is between prejudice or slavery. Now, of course, the Indians have a choice. Blacks don't have a choice. They're, they're at least in Tocqueville's mind. Now, we can look at the Civil War era and say, yeah, black people definitely fought for their independence and, and helped achieve it through military arms, through struggle, through resistance, and things like that. But uh, that's not really on Tocqueville's mind here. Basically, their condition as slaves or free is largely a decision of whites. Um, so to call this a choice is a bit unfair, not quite right, but nevertheless, it's sort of presented as a choice. And that is uh, freedom and prejudice or, or, or slavery. And why is freedom and prejudice uh, connected. Well, he just looks empirically and he says, I find more segregation, I find more prejudice, I find more uh, hostility towards black people in places with, where, where slavery has been, has been abolished. He writes, wherever whites have been more powerful to date, they have kept Negroes in degradation or slavery. Wherever Negroes have been stronger, they have destroyed whites. Such is the only reckoning that exists between the two races. Have Negroes drawn closer to whites in the proportion of the Union where they are no longer slaves? Anyone who has lived in the United States will have noticed that the opposite has occurred. Racial prejudices seem to be stronger in the states that have abolished slavery than in those where slavery still exists, and nowhere is intolerance greater than in states where servitude was unknown. Um, and he goes through the free states and he sees the basically segregation as the result of emancipation in these places. And he looks at the free, free blacks in the South and other places as well, saying that these are the ones who experience the most hostility and, and, and aggression, right? And this, you know, I think there's historical evidence to back this up. I don't think he's making this up, right? And, you know, s slavery was not segregated. It, it simply was. Whites and blacks worked together uh, on the fields. Often plantations would hire white for white labor, you had overseers, you had sex between masters and slaves, rape. Um, obviously, we saw that with Jefferson and, and Sally Hemings. It's, 
it's it's fairly integrated. Yeah, I guess you had whites in the big house and slaves in the slave quarters, but it's it's more integrated than what came after this. What came with the Jim Crow era, where you had laws physically separating blacks and whites. And I, I talked a little bit about this when we looked at the Harlem Renaissance texts. You know, the, the, the African American writers writing during the Jim Crow years and the emergence of Jim Crow. Charles Chestnut, the Harlem Renaissance writers. James Weldon Johnson and no W.E.B. Du Bois, you know, go back to those series. I had a lot of fun looking at those those works. So I actually think this is something fairly predictive and something that that seems pa that, that panned out in actual American history. So he looked at a lot of different aspects of race relations in America, not just slavery. He looks at uh, segregation, the emergence of segregation in some areas. He looks at the sectional division uh, to slavery, the fact that you, you have read different racial attitudes in areas that are that, that have ended slavery and some that have kept it. Uh, he looks a lot at the fate of free blacks, which he's not too encouraged by. And he also talks about the fact that this is tied to a certain economic system, right? Plantation slavery, and he actually argues how slavery doesn't seem to work as, you know, in grain farming, for instance. And that, I think, there's empirical evidence to support as well, um, obviously. Not all slaves were plantation agriculture, but the, the cotton economy certainly contributed to its um, spread. So what are the alternatives then to slavery? Well, he, he gives um, four options, it seems to me, four different things that can emerge out of the ending of slavery. Um, now, for, he's, first is, is the basic equality of potential, right? I guess um, maybe there's only, only three, because this is uh, tied to a different option, but it's kind of his starting point. And that's, that's unlike someone like Jefferson, Tocqueville believes fully in the equality of potential of, of um, blacks and whites. Um, and he sees slavery as purely a product of historical conditions. Quote, the same abuses of power that maintain slavery in the South today would become the greater source of danger for whites. Today, descendants of Europeans own all the land. They're ma absolute masters of the workforce. They alone are rich, enlightened, and armed. Blacks have none of these advantages, but can do without them because they are slaves. As free men responsible for their own fate, they, could they remain so deprived and yet not, not yet perish? What made the white man strong when slavery existed would therefore expose them to innumerable perils if slavery were abolished. So long as the Negro is left in certitude, he can be kept in a state bordering on brutishness. But once he becomes free, there's no way to prevent him from learning enough to appreciate the extent of his afflictions and conceive a vague idea of the remedy. More than that, a singular principle of relative justice lies within the human heart. And this is just a fancy way of saying is like once you end slavery, you know, at least the idea of democracy for black people would be there immediately. It's, there wouldn't even be any, any hesitation. And I think, again, there's historical evidence to think he's right about this if you look at the Reconstruction era politics of African Americans. Um, so that's kind of his starting point. And, and so I guess he has three alternatives from that starting point. One is revolution and conflict. Um, and if you have a place, he basically says, if you have a place where blacks will outnumber whites, there's going to be a race war that's going to lead to blacks taking over the political system. And of course, you have the revolution in Saint-Domingue, what happened in the West Indies. That's clear evidence that well, this is where Tocqueville gets this from, it seems to me. So you got the basically some kind of revolutionary conflict. This won't happen in places where whites have a majority, though. But it's basically a, a question of political power and, and who can seize it. That's one. It's basically a race war is one possible future. The second is colonization. And he's, 
you know, Jefferson to his dying breath seemed to believe colonization was the best path forward. Uh, Tocqueville is not so stupid. He, he does not see colonization as, as possible. Um, but he does kind of say, well, some may move there. Some may move to Africa and bring kind of American civilization. He's interested in that, which is something Jefferson was interested in too. But he doesn't see it as a, a real viable option. Uh, so what's left then? Uh, and that is the spread of democracy, is freedom and rights. So he's got a very uh, interesting um, argument here where he's against slavery. Obviously, he's against slavery. He believes in the full equality, equality potential of blacks and whites. But at the same time, he sees that like, the, the future in the South is more likely going to be some kind of race war, race war. He writes, the Negroes may long remain slaves without complaint, but once they join the ranks of freemen, they will soon feel outraged at being deprived of nearly all the rights of citizens. And they cannot become the white man's equal. They will not wait long before revealing themselves to be his enemies. God forbid I should try to justify the principle of Negro servitude, as some American authors do. I say only that the people who embraced this dreadful principle in the past are not all equally free to let go of it today. I confess that when I consider the state of the South, I see only two ways for whites who live in the region to act, either free the Negroes and fuse with them, or remain isolated from them and keep them in slavery as long as possible. In my view, any intermediate measure will lead immediately to the most horrible of all civil wars, and perhaps to the disruption of one or two of the races. Um, yeah, so he sees that's really the only path forward, and it's what Jefferson never could imagine, and that is you end slavery, and then you expand democracy to them, um, and you abolish the racial barriers. You know, which essentially means freedom and rights, freedom and political rights, freedom and democracy. Um, that's not where uh, the American South went, obviously, but it's the consequences of that are clear to see. Again, go back to my series on Jim Crow era black writers and the Harlem Renaissance, and uh, maybe not a total race war as predicted by Tocqueville here, but uh, a lot of racial conflict. Um, so this is his section on, 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 the, th on the three races. Um, but then he goes to the question, will the union last? And this is in the chapter on race. So he sees certainly the question of the union, the federal system lasting in America as tied very intimately to the race question. Now, what are some of the things promoting connection of the survival of the union? Well, one is the interconnected of the economies, the growing market economy. Um, but at the same time, he sees diverging values. Um, really what's holding the union together is maybe the law, um, kind of a value of democracy overall, and the economy, the e economic interdependence. But he sees growing emerging diverging values coming because of slavery in large part. Slavery is a threat to mores and interests. It divides the nation, it divides the union in terms of interests and also in overall mores. He sees essentially slavery is corrupting to, to the mores of democracy, for obvious reasons. Um, he also talks about, uh, not so much tied to slavery, but, but if you look at the sexual crisis, maybe a little bit connected to it, and that is the growing expansion and diversity of the nation. What will expansion mean? He's really a bullish on the future of America across the continent. You know, he predicts in the end of volume one, you know, 150 million Americans. He's within a century or so. He's not far off, just taking the population futures. And he says this is going to spread across many different environments, create greater diversity. And he's a little bit skeptical if, if the union can hold together with that much diversity. 
So there's some risk of union falling apart. What he doesn't think is going to happen is democracy is going to democratic, democratic republicanism. What may not last is the federal system. He writes, uh, the union can die in two ways. One of the Confederate states, Confederate states may wish to renege on the contract and thus break the common bond in a violent way. Most of the remarks I've made thus far apply to this case. Or the federal government may gradually lose its power if for some reason all the United Republics simultaneously reclaim their independence. The central power deprived of its prerogatives one by one and reduced in impotence by tacit accord would become incapable of fulfilling its purposes and the second union would perish like the first in a kind of senile imbecility. Well, the second part doesn't happen. It, the, the federal state gets stronger throughout history. Um, you know, leading up to the Civil War, it was getting stronger, and certainly since the Civil War, it's been strengthened. So that's not what's been happening. More administrative centralization has taken place, um, which I think Tocqueville sees as risky in the terms of, of leading to more tyranny of the majority, but also um, creating a little bit more vibrant democracy um, at, within the whole, the whole of the federal system, both local and, and federal level. Uh, of course, historically, what happened is some of the states did renege on their their you know their their position in the union. So he predicts a civil war here. That's one of his two options he sees forward for the for the breaking of the union. Um, then he talks about uh, other political conflicts that are going to emerge between the different regions, uh, the sectional regions. Um, but he sees this kind of in the far future. He says, I believe that the day is still far off when federal power incapable of protecting its own existence and bringing peace to the country will die, as it were, of its own accord. The union is part of the nation's mores. People want it. Its results are evident. Its benefits visible. When people recognize that the weakness of the federal government is compromised, the, ex the existence of the union, I have no doubt that a reaction will take place in favor of force. Um, so next he asks, can institutions survive? Can the institutions of republic survive? And he says, this is not the same as the question of the union, right? And throughout the whole book, especially volume one, he's saying there's democratic republicanism and then there's the union. And in American democracy, the union, the federal system is part of this. But these are really separate questions. That the federal system could dissolve, you'd still have the institutions of republic. Um, and what he says is, in the American case, this is very dangerous because there's no alternative to despotism. There's no monarchy, there's no aristocracy that America can go back to. He actually doubts a new world society can have an aristocracy. An aristocracy can only come through kind of history, um, like in Europe. So what else, you can't go to an aristocracy, all you can do is to despotism, and, and that's the real danger. Um, then he finally he asked, you know, why is the US a commercial power? And he, this kind of fits into chapter 10. I, I don't see how it's directly connected to it, but um, he does say some interesting things about the U.S.'s power as a commercial state. Um, and he says, well, basically the Americans are the most economical in commerce. Part of it is because the Americans need trade. They, they have a civili they're civilized, they have um, great wealth, but they don't have necessarily the material capacity to produce everything they need. So they rely on trade to meet their needs. Um, so they're going to have a well-developed trade. He talks about their maritime provinces and the uh, development of a maritime workforce. Um, the question is, would the breakup of the Union, would this lead to the United States, the, the states of America being, the American democracies being less of a commercial force? He says, no, not at all. He thinks 
even if the Union broke, breaks up, there'd still be, might even be a stronger uh, commercial fleet as these different powers compete. Um, and that pretty much does it. That's what he, um, that's what Tocqueville wrote in um, the rest of Volume 1. Uh, here's a small conclusion at the end of Volume 1. Now remember, at the time, this was going to be it. So this, this was the original publication of Democracy in America. The other book came out five years later. So this is kind of intended to be a general conclusion. And his conclusion is that democracy is going to spread in the world. Um, and also that America is going to rise to be the dominant force in the hemisphere. And so those are his two main conclusions. So this is, for these two reasons, Europeans, his audience, has to have to come to terms and understand America. And that's, so his conclusion ties to the reason he's writing this book. All right, that does it. That's, that's all of volume one of Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America. In uh, the next episode, we'll jump right into volume two, which I think is more fun. Um, part one of, of volume two is called The Influence of Democracy on the Evolution and of the American Intellect. And we'll look at that whole thing. It's about 100 pages. Uh, basically, there's four parts. One's fairly short, but I'll just do it part one, part two, part three, part four, uh, and kind of break from the 100 pages. Uh, rubric for now, uh, it, it averages out. Um, 100 pages per episode, but I'm going to do it part by part. We're going to start with the intellectual um, climate, you know, how American philosophy, what does, he, what does he observe about American philosophy? Very, very interesting stuff, and some of his most memorable and important arguments come out of this um, part. So if you're reading along, uh, do check out uh, Volume 2 of Democracy in America. Uh, and I'll be back with with my thoughts. So uh, if you have your own thoughts, is there anything I missed in volume one, all of volume one of Tocqueville's book, anything I misinterpreted or you think you have a, a question about, please just leave your question or thoughts below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll see you soon with uh, my continuing coverage of this wonderful uh, book of political theory, one of the best ever written. Rock See you next time. Bye, baby, when you awake, you will discover old tip is a fake. Far from the battle, a war cry and drum, he sits in his cabin drinking bad rum. <laughs>